Jacob, Jacobs, good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've spent all of our time this morning preparing our hearts to be in the Word, which the Lord has elevated equal to His own name, so that we can know more about His nature, we can understand what He has to say to us, and, and what, how that applies to us. And if, you've, if you're new with us, we're glad that you're here. If it's been a while since you've been here, you've missed some of this, we'll catch you up here today. If it's your first time, we'll uh, make sure you know what's going on. Enjoy when we open the Word of God and just read from it and teach from it. It's always a blessing. And so it'll be good. And, and just to reiterate uh, what Jason said earlier about uh, our upcoming outreach, it is one of the major outreaches that we do in the year is to be at the Rustburg Christmas Parade. We have either three or four kiosks where we hand out hot chocolate and uh, candy canes, but most importantly, New Testaments and tracts. Last year, about 800, I think, cups of hot chocolate and tracks went out over three uh, kiosks. About 10,000 people attend the parade every year, and so it's our joy to be out there in our neighborhoods uh, along that street, if you will, and just doing that. So if, uh, we're looking for three tent leaders. If you're interested in leading a tent, uh, you won't have to do uh, a lot, but um, making sure that your group is there and they know what to do and all that. Come and see me if you would, or just or text me, uh, email me, and it'd be great to get you plugged in there. Still a few weeks where we can uh, be planning this, all right? First Timothy chapter 5, we're in a continuing study through the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, the name of the study is Instructions for the Church, for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. And the reason why we call it that, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the letter clearly says that if I'm delayed, I'm writing to you so you'll know how to conduct yourself in the household of faith, which is the pillar and support of the church, the church of the living God. And so uh, we understand we're still in the, t- in the New Testament church age. What Paul had to say to Timothy in this first century church in Ephesus still is just as applicable today as it was then. And so when we read what he has to say about what should go on, what shouldn't go on, who should lead, who shouldn't lead, all those things, very, very important for us to understand them and begin to apply them if we're outside of those parameters. And so that's where we are, and that's how we've continued to look at this book. And and it's great to be with you today. We're in a new section. We started it last. We kind of laid the foundation for this new section in chapter 5. We've called this section Relating and Leading under Guidelines for Public Worship. So I'd like you to turn in your Bible. We read the whole chapter. We're actually through verse 16 last time. I'm just going to read these first two verses where we'll spend our time today. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 1, and we'll read it 1 and 2. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, Do not rebuke, sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Let's stop right there. Now, last week we took a short survey as we examined the words used here to describe the church. Uh, a number of words are there, and we looked at them last time. We looked at words like body. The church is described as a body often. We see it uh, a good bit in the New Testament uh, that the body works together just like your own body does. We understand those parameters. And we see the word holy nation. We see a royal priesthood. We see a people for God's own possession, branches off the true vine, the bride of Christ, and on and on. And we've looked at a number of those. And if you missed that, you can get on Spotify and listen to that. But uh, of course, each of those words would merit a study on their own as names really are so rich in meaning. It's a reason why they're used so we can understand the dynamic that goes on in the church and, and security and the obligation and, and really to bring our lives uh, really so much uh, important foundational structure as we understand how the church is supposed to work. Now, 
there's one word, though, that's used to describe the church that comes into play here, and Paul is helping Timothy begin to apply this instruction he's been given, and that word is the word family. And that's a wonderful word, a wonderful reality, and we understand family. Perhaps we had a good family, perhaps not so good. We understand the words, though, perhaps what they were supposed to mean. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 He says, so then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You're God's household. What a rich word that is. If you've been part of a household, you understand a father, you understand a mother, you understand instruction, you understand love, you understand all these kinds of things. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The redeemed are sons and daughters of God. That, that's your position by God's own words. Romans chapter 8 verse 15, you have not received a spirit of slavery again, Uh, leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You've been adopted in, co-heirs with Christ. And that's your position. And you can use the most intimate of terms to relate to your Father who loves you. And I just love all of that. That helps us understand a little bit about that relationship. You've been adopted. And family is a great word. It speaks in, in, in a real sense of love and of closeness and care and honesty and one another's and sacrifice. And those characteristics are to describe the church family too. And we also saw that part of a true family, a godly family, will also include the element of accountability. A part of accountability is the confronting of sin. And it's true in a family, it's true in a church. Where there's love, there is a concern to deal with something that isn't right. It's just part of the responsibility of being in a family. We wouldn't be content allowing our children to head off in destructive, sinful patterns without correcting them. The Bible is very clear about that correction and in what form it's supposed to take. And it really tells us that we don't correct them, we don't discipline, we hate them. And so it's a really clear understanding of what the family is supposed to look like. And part of that dynamic, of course, that's left off a good bit inside the church is this accountability. People don't want to be accountable, and they don't want anybody to get up where they are personally. But that's really part and parcel of being brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pointed out, as we see these pastoral epistles really addressed to elders and how they're supposed to lead the church, we understand that there's only one godly standard, and we've said this over and over again. So whatever that standard is that the elder is supposed to keep, that's a non-negotiable. But that's the same standard everybody's supposed to apply, uh, aspire to. And it's the same here. In, in fact, James chapter 5, verse 19, really directly speaks to this part of that loving relationship of a family and the accountability in the church. And he says, my brethren, again, very family uh, word, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And beloved, as you think about that, that's one of the hardest things to do. Nobody really wants to do that. I know if you correct your children, you really, you know you have to, but you hate having to do it. It's the same, it's a very difficult thing to go to someone and attempt to turn someone who's in error. But this is just really everywhere in the New Testament. That's godliness, that's love, that's a family, that's just the way it is. And so as we approach the chapter, we saw that we need to do this, uh, and, and Paul is talking to Timothy about relationships, how to establish a relation so that he can make the reproof that he needs to make. That's the whole idea of these first two verses. And, and do it in the light of all the instruction Paul has penned to Timothy on dozens of issues that are negatively affecting the church. 
And in all that we looked at, there are, and there are easily dozens more which deal with real people in real error which have to be dealt with, what we have to realize in the context of this letter is that Paul isn't here. He says, I long to come to you soon, but we know he never made it back there. But he gave instruction that's lasting all the way till now. But Timothy then has to confront these things in the people who are doing them. So all these instructions, all these commands, all these corrections, they don't exist in a vacuum. People are actually violating these things and Timothy's going to have to go and he's going to have to speak to them. And if you ever had to talk to somebody who's in sinfulness, you understand how hard that is. And so he, he gives Timothy some relational skills in his leading and rebuking. He's in a family. Uh, the people here he knows, and he's going to have to go confront the factious man we saw in, T- in Titus. He's going to have to confront the leader who has children who won't obey and make them step down. He's going to uh, have to confront the women who are taking authority in the church and trying to teach men and tell them they can no longer do that. Uh, he's going to go to the gossiper. He's going to go to the slanderer, uh, the men who are ungodly and worldly. We saw in chapter 2 who are attempting to stand up and lead the church in prayer. They can't do that anymore, and Paul says that has to be confronted and any number of combinations. And it can be a disaster sometimes, and it likely is going to be a disaster because people who are not walking by faith or not walking in accordance with the Word of God typically don't have spirit-controlled responses to someone who comes along and says what they need to say. But Timothy is told, listen, as you go to this difficult situation, as you have to deal with these people who are difficult, and Paul, remember when he came, he said he put out Hymenaeus and Alexander. Those were two elders in the church because they had blasphemed and wouldn't change. And so Paul had to put them out of the church. So this is what's going on. And Paul, Paul says to Timothy, listen, in this disaster, perhaps it's going to be, go about it like this. And then he gives Timothy an approach that's going to help keep perhaps an unpleasant thing from becoming even more unpleasant. And so he starts the section like this. Look back in your copy of God's Word to verses 1 and 2. He says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather, he says, appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. So now you can see the context of Paul's instruction. Paul uses all those family names. They're very familiar to us. They're familiar to him. And Timothy was in a family in Ephesus, a family of the church. A family in Ephesus had some very serious issues going on, which is the reason for the writing. And over and over again, we've noticed how Paul points out some wrong doctrine and some wrong things going on in public worship or some personal sinfulness. And so you get to these two verses, and there's obviously nothing overt about these two verses that says, Timothy, go correct these people. Timothy knew this because Paul's wording throughout the letter. He said, this has to be fixed, this has to be fixed, to address this thing. And, and so it, it's implied that it's going to have to happen in these two verses. And, and we know how God feels about discipline. We looked at a lot of that background last time. Uh, I think you understand that fairly well. We know what the scripture teaches. We've read numerous examples, even this morning. So he knew how God felt about discipline. He knew what the scripture taught. And, and perhaps it was comforting to Timothy to know these things. But now that we know what it says, and then we have an idea of what it means by what it says, let's look at how this applies to us, which is our third step in Bible study. Look back at verse 1. He says this. He says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. And and that word sharply rebuke is the compound verb epilexis, aorist, active, subjunctive. Epi is is, uh, on and placo is the idea of striking. 
And, and here figuratively it's used of striking with words. Striking with words. I think we understand that, right? We, perhaps we've been in a relationship where people struck with words. They didn't hit with their fists or their hands, but they struck with words. And, and in this voice, in this mood, aorist would be a snapshot of time. So anytime then, anytime. And the subjunctive would mean it's possible. So it's possible then, literally, that there might be a time, that's what he's telling Timothy, where you may need to correct an older man. And we know it's very likely. Okay, so the idea that it's going to happen is pretty, is pretty sure. Don't strike him with words. Now, what we saw then, and we saw this last week, if you missed this, you can catch up. We went back to the Old Testament, just some examples of the prophets. Now, if, if anybody we felt like could strike somebody with words, it'd be the prophets, right? I mean, they, they called down fire and they did all kinds of stuff. But what we found, though, is we looked through what the prophets were supposed to say and how the Lord instructed them, especially for Isaiah and Ezekiel, which were our two main examples. All wrath and bitterness were set aside. God brings the wrath, he brings the chastening, and we bring the message. And you remember, as we talked about it, he would say, hear the words, man of God, I'm going to give you. Don't drop any of them. Give them to them. They're going to know a prophet's been among them. You tell them my words. And then to the people, what does he say? This is the reason you're no longer in Jerusalem. This is the reason your cities are burned and you're desolate and you're living in Egypt. And all because you did not obey all the prophets I sent you who gave you my words and you didn't listen to them. So I've brought the chastening on you. And that's the idea. God brings the wrath. God brings the chastening. We bring the message. And just as a footnote, this admonition uh, is implied with younger men and older women and younger women uh, all throughout these two verses. Same instruction, although it's, it's not repeated in each category of persons, the elder or, uh, or who may need to be confronted or anyone else. The idea is don't sharply rebuke them. And Paul modifies what needs to happen then with this confrontation. Because it's easy just to throw the whole rebuke out right? We don't, if they, I mean, you know, they just need our tenderness, right? They just need our understanding. They, they don't need us to tell them anything. You, you can't go that far. And so let's, let's break this down. He says, but rather, he says, appeal to him as a father. And that appeal to him is the Greek compound verb parakaleo from the parakaleo. And I, I think that we remember this. We've looked at it before. Para is with or on or alongside and kaleo is to call. And we understand this word because we've seen it many times, but it literally means to come alongside as a helper. And modeling, of course, how the Holy Spirit works with each of us because that's one of the names of the Holy Spirit, that helper. The Holy Spirit isn't easy on us. I mean, he, he doesn't overlook sinfulness or willfulness or rebellion. He comes alongside unless we've quenched him, unless we've, our call, we've calloused our conscience. We're not listening anymore. But in general, for a believer to walk in sinfulness, the Holy Spirit comes alongside. And he says, these are the things that you're doing wrong. He makes it clear and brings, brings uh, conviction on us. And the tense and mood and voice are, as you might expect, present, active, imperative. Every time Paul tells Timothy what to do, he says it in the imperative. Not if you'd like to do this, if this works out, do it like this. It's this is how you're supposed to manage this. It's in the form of a command. So in other words, Timothy, this is to be the nature of the care and correction you give out. It should be comforting. It should be encouraging. It should be admonishing. And that is really principle number one. As we think about correction that has to be done, it's, it's not to be done in the spirit of anger or the spirit of wrath, or the spirit of disrespect, but in the spirit of encouragement and admonishment. All those things are contained in the imperative of parakaleo. The best way to look, I think, at both words is that parakaleo is supplementary to the rebuke all through. 
So you can't get rid of the word rebuke. It's still there. Remember I told you last week as we looked at the definition of rebuke is just placing the actions in stark contrast to what the scripture actually says. That's a rebuke. So whatever they're doing, you understand what the Bible says and you make it clear, here's where they are, here's where they're supposed to be. So that still has to be there. Otherwise, Paul writes to Second Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That wouldn't mean anything. Right? If, if you modified it to the point where you're just coming alongside and being kind and, and, and gentle, you're not saying anything, then what would the rest of the, of the instruction mean? Right? It would be unclear what you're supposed to do. So Paul's not negating the rebuke. He's just modifying it. Do you see? It's a supplemental. And so, if you think about Titus chapter 2.15, these things speak, exhort, reprove, with all authority and let no one disregard you. You're to correct people and you're supposed to do it with all authority and you're not to let them disregard what you're saying. And so those passages would mean nothing if now we no longer have a rebuke or a proof that has to be part of how we care for one another in a family. So it can't be that. So with all authority, don't let them disregard you. And so as we start with the older men, older men don't have the right to do whatever they want in the church merely because they're old or because they've been around a long time, or because they've served on a committee, or whatever it is. You don't have the right to do whatever they want to do, and Timothy's going to have to deal with older men than he, than he is. Uh, they and everyone else has to come in line in action and word. But the coming alongside softens that whole thing, and softens the rebuke enough, and reminds Timothy of what the prophets of old understood. That God brings the difficulty, God brings the chastening, you bring, and he'll bring the wrath if necessary, you bring the message. And so that's the essence of it. And, and, of course, in Titus it says with great patience and instruction, as it says in 2 Timothy, coming alongside like the Holy Spirit models for us may make the offenders more inclined to heed the admonition. It's hard to know. It's a difficult situation. And obviously Timothy is a little concerned about it and anxious and a little timid. And so Paul's giving him some ways to relate so that he can maybe make the best of a bad situation. And because we know uh, not everyone has a good example of a father and, and may not know how to interact, I want to give a quick illustration of what uh, the Word of God looks like for each of these things because I want to have us on an even keel, uh, starting with a father so we can see what it looks like. And, and we could spend a lot of time here. I'm not going to. I'm just going to give you some illustrations to help you understand how that interaction with a father needs to go. And, and now in this illustration, Paul is, is having to confront a much older Peter about a sin issue. And Paul describes what it was to the church in Galatia. Now the whole story is available to you in Acts chapter 11. So if you want to know how it all washed out and this very dark time in church history where it could have really gone south quickly and never returned, uh, you can read about it there. But in Galatians chapter 2 verse 11, he's telling the church in Galatia what happened with Peter. And he says this, he says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So there's no equivocation there, is there? There were some problems, and what did Paul do? He made sure it was clear where the problem was. That's a rebuke. It's clear what the Bible says. Here's what you're doing, okay? For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he, that's Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now, in a nutshell, Peter has regressed and begun to live like a legalist, because that's what's happening here. 
because of some pressure from Judaizers that came from James who taught that the full ceremonial law was still in effect. That would include the diet and circumcision and feast days and Sabbath days and so forth and all of that. They were saying in order to be saved, you had to keep all those things. Of course, that's a pretty dark thing because it's by grace through faith. Repentant faith leads to salvation complete in Christ. Nothing else. And so here's a problem. And Peter, unfortunately, fell into that trap and led some others astray. Peter stopped interacting with Gentiles. He no longer was eating with them and interacting with them because he was holding himself aloof and being with the Jews and kind of participating in that whole regression back to keeping of the law. And this is a problem. And, and so Paul is in this uh, enviable position of having to confront him about it. And so notice how he confronts him. He says in verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So there it is, right? The gospel had been maligned. Now it wasn't the gospel, the simple gospel of Christ anymore. Now it was all, this other, all these other things added to it. I said to Cephas, that's Peter, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, you've been liberated from the ceremonial law and you've been living like this the whole time. And now you're keeping all this stuff again? Why? That's what's going on. Now look again at verse 11. Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's the reality of it, see? It wasn't okay because Peter sincerely was believing it at that time. It was still wrong. And Peter had to be confronted. And he, and he did so... And, and he didn't equivocate about it. He made it clear what the problem was. But in the actual conversation, he says this. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? He doesn't even make a statement. He asks a question. And he's not wrathful. He just says, how is it that now you're here when you used to be here? And he does it in front of everybody. And it appears reasonable that he does it this way, beloved, mark this, in order that he is giving a great example to Timothy to do exactly like he's done. Here's Paul addressing an older saint in the face, someone with well-established, uh, a godly heritage, someone who is very instrumental in the, in, the, in the planting of the church and all that. And so parakaleo here then, as it's moderating the rebuke, is going to be in deference and respectfulness of age. So I think we can see that. And, and in order to equip Timothy further then, as he gets this understanding of how he's going to have to address men who are older than he is, and there's this wide scope of ministry and a lot of difficulties and sinfulness plaguing the church and manifested in individuals of all different ages, he's going to kind of work his way through and do the same thing, and that's what we're going to do. So the next thing is, he says, the younger men as brothers... So, if the main idea for confronting an older man like a father is deference because of age, the word for confronting a brother is humbleness. Why? Well, because you're equals, right? In this case, Timothy has to lose any superiority attitude when he goes to the sitting younger man. Now, if you grew up with brothers, and I grew up with one, and he's very close in age, you would probably not consider yourself when you're younger equals, right? Because I could take my brother any old time, Okay. You could too, right? I mean, you, you're bumping heads when you're younger. I mean, it's always like something going on. But so my idea is that to project that on out as you get older, what ends up happening? 
you become equals, don't you? For whatever ribbing happened, whatever teasing happened, whatever hardship, whatever goofing around, you know, picking on each other, when you get older, there's an equality there. When your brother talks, you're listening to what he says and, and vice versa. That's the issue here. And so thinking about your own brother and how often you scrapped it out, that's not the idea. The idea here is you're coming in here with no hierarchy because there's no hierarchy to the word brother. Paul wants Timothy to approach the situation with parakaleo. How's that going to work out for a brother? That would include humility. And again, the letter to Galatians helps us understand this a little bit and this uniformity of this application. And in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, he says this. He says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, he says in verse 2, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3, 4, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Now look how the apostle starts the chapter. What's the very first word he says? You see that? He, he always uses that word. Why? Because there's equality there. And Paul always says brethren. Again, emphasizing a family relationship and an equality. That's how Paul's referring to them. Brothers, if a man falls, as it were, from righteousness, if a man falls into sin, he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. So, that is, you who aren't in sin, see, restore, that's present active imperative, kartartizo. This is a really great word. And we've looked at it before, if you remember. This is the word about putting things back together, restoring them as they should be. If you like doing old cars, those kinds of things. It's putting stuff back like it was to begin with. And that's the idea. He says, you who are spiritual, you who haven't fallen into sin, put them back together correctly. So, beloved, it's going to require a confrontation, right? You can't just go along and just say, well, he's off on this track and I'm not going to say anything because then you violate this passage. If there's a problem, it's going to have to be addressed first and you're going to have to identify it. There's going to have to be a reproof so that it's clear where they've moved away from sound teaching because there's a command to do it. And then you want to bring him back to where he used to be and you do that. You see how it's modified? In the spirit of what? gentleness. Why? Realizing that you also could be what? Tempted with the same thing. See? Because you're equal and you could be. So when you go to a brother, you go with family love and family love goes to a brother and says, I know I'm like you and I could be in the same situation that you are in and I just want to lift you up and take you back to where you belong and I want to restore you in love and in meekness. And then verse 2 adds to that and I love this. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. That's the attitude of humility, right? It shows you understand. It shows you're willing to take on that burden that that person is bearing and help them. And then this last part in verse 3, it says, For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And that's a warning against superiority, right? Because no one's superior to anyone else. Remember what Paul says, uh, why do you boast about something if you've received it, as if you hadn't received it? Everything that we have is from Christ. All the goodness, anything that is appropriate for us is just from Christ. And so that's this warning against superiority, because if you think you're something, you deceive yourself, because everyone is at the same level. And so 
Matthew 18, 15, again, same wording. If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. It's all motivated out of love. That whole passage starting in Matthew 18, 15 and working its way all the way through church discipline. You know what it's motivated for? Not vindictiveness, not embarrassment, although some embarrassment comes as a result of it. It's motivated to bring the church alongside so that they're praying for the restoration of the erring individual. But you start out of love, individually, privately. Why? Because you may not understand the whole thing and you may be wrong. And so you come alongside and say, this is what it looks like to me and I'm here to help you and I want to pray for you, but you need to turn back from the direction you're going. 1 Peter 1.22, again, illustrates this perfectly. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You have been equipped to love people this way. You've been equipped to go alongside and bring them back. You've been equipped to pray for them and bear their burdens. If you're redeemed, you have the love that's necessary. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Here's the thing. I say this a lot to people who are struggling in their faith. They ask some questions. Here's the first one I ask. Can you please describe for me what Jesus has done and means to you? Done for you and means to you. If somebody responds and just says, what do you mean? That by itself is very indicative of perhaps what their relationship is like. Because although you may be slow to start, if you're truly born again, it doesn't take you long for a whole dam to just rupture, Right? When you begin to talk about your relationship to Jesus, that becomes just an overflowing well. And the joy that's incomparable, that is setting, that you set aside in your own heart, that that reunion with him is the most joy you can possibly think about. But then you think about all the things that he has done, and that just becomes an overflowing well. But the second part is this. When I talk to people, do you love coming to church? Because the love of the brethren is supposed to be there, right? This is the family, and you want to be with your family. Some of you will miss church to go be with your family when your family's in town, when you should be bringing them to church, right? It's always funny to me when people say, yeah, my family's in town, but won't be coming to church. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You don't want your family to be in church. You know, that'd be bad. But take that for what it's worth. It's an advertisement to not do that anymore. But the thing about it is, you know, when you talk to people, you're just like, do you love the church? Do you love the brethren? Because that's part of... Being born again, because if you don't love the brother and you don't like the fellowship of the saints, guess what? It says you may be deceived. And so those two things are very important dynamic to just kind of seeing where you are in the faith. But here it is, it's, you know, fervently love one another from the heart. You, you've been obedient to the truth, you purified your souls, and you have a sincere love of the faith, of the brethren. Love the brother, love the brother, love the brother. It's all the way through the New Testament. And love is the motivation for approaching an erring believer. And love has a softening effect so that there's humility. Because approaching sinful brothers in the church is not easy. As James 5, we just looked at it and I told you, it's not easy to do this. And your love has to be greater than the discomfort it's going to cause you to go and say, hey, you know, this is not where you need to be. But it's just as much your responsibility as it is for me, as we saw out of James. And so it's not easy. And, and, and of course, we're just hitting all of this because not everyone had the benefit of a loving biological brother uh, uh, or, or a father or whatever in, in a family situation. And, and the passage um, is just so clear. And, and the one I want to use is 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and we'll move on. But he says this, he goes, um, Now I command you, we command you, brethren, again, a great family word, 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and it's a command here, right? I mean, just, just because he loves him doesn't mean he's not willing to say the things that are hard. We command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you received from us. What's the problem? Someone is not walking in accordance with scriptural teaching. Well, I mean, that's just how they are. No, no that, that doesn't work that way. It's not just how they are. If they're walking in disobedience to his clear scriptural teaching, then he says, keep away from every brother. So again, someone who's a believer but walking unfaithfully, who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Now, what's Paul's instruction to the church on how to deal with this whole issue? Well, let's look. In verse 7, he says this, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Now, so they, here's the idea. Everybody knew how they were supposed to act. And Paul was clear in his teaching, and even when he was with them, he made it clear what it looks like to be someone who's desiring to know what's pleasing to the Lord. And so, it wasn't like they hadn't been taught. They had been. They knew what was supposed to go on. And Paul says, listen, we didn't act in an undisciplined manner, like individuals are acting. But with labor and hardship, we worked night and day, so we wouldn't be a burden. He wasn't a freeloader. Paul said, we took care of our own needs. Not because we do not have the right to this. In other words, it was okay for the church to support him, and it would have been appropriate for them to do it. But he says, in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. You had some freeloaders in the church, had some people not doing any work. Paul says, we didn't want to be a negative example, even though it was okay for you to support us. We didn't want to be a negative example. For he says, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, he's not to eat either. That's a pretty interesting comment. Now, we live in a society where that is everywhere. The, 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 the uh, uh, freeloader state is what we live in. And the longer we have uh, the administration in the White House we have, we just want to get more and more people on the freeloader state, right? Who, give their, who get their very uh, uh, survival from the government. But Paul says in the church, that's not how it's supposed to be. If you don't work, you don't eat. So they had people who were kind of freeloading off the rest of the congregation. They weren't, didn't have a job. They weren't working hard. The other con- members were always having to supplement, supplement, supplement. He says, it's not how it's supposed to be. And we didn't act like that when we were with you. So he says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, it's not okay to just be that way, is it? He says, we command you and we exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not go weary of doing good. Now, that's, that's a great encouragement. Just because everybody else is a freeloader, you keep working hard, all right? You're doing what the Lord wants you to do, even though it doesn't appear it's going as well for you, perhaps, as it's going for other people. Don't, don't uh, grow weary of doing good. Now, mark this. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, so that's all the things he's talked about in the letter, not just in this paragraph, but everything he's given to the church so we know what's pleasing to the Lord. If you don't, if you do not, uh, if they won't obey those instructions, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So w- when you have a sinning brother, don't associate with it. Don't hang around. Don't do what he does. Break off that fellowship. He doesn't need you hanging with him, okay? You may think that he does. Oh, yeah, he really needs me to hang out with him right now. No, actually, the scripture says you're not to do that. 
If you've already confronted the issue and they haven't turned from their sin, then what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to break off the fellowship. What he really needs you to do is make a point. The point the Lord wants you to make with him. And then what? Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You're your brother's keeper in this respect, but always with humility for a younger man, for someone who's like a brother. Why? Because you could be in the same boat and you're not superior to him. So with deference for an older man, humility for a younger man, if you've got to confront somebody, these are the ways you go about it. And then he goes to this. He says, and older women as mothers. Now again, assuming that you have had a mother who was tender uh, to you, Uh, You can probably understand this. Not everyone has had that experience. But whether you have or have not had a good experience in the rebuke, you have to, that parakaleo is supplementary all the way through. So it comes to older women. It's a coming alongside. And for a mother, the best word may be a gentleness or a tenderness. And the reason why I say that is as we can get that from Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Now look at this illustration, and I think you can see how that's got to go about. You know, I don't know that anything is more difficult for a pastor than having to address an older woman who's causing trouble in the church. But here's what he says. And Paul addresses the church in Philippi, and he says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, again, family name, equal whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So you can hear the tenderness, right? You can hear uh, the gentleness with his opening statements. He lets them know that he loves them. He lets them know that he misses them. They have a very high value to him. He wants them to do well. And then he goes on with a rebuke. And he says in verse 2, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Shintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, this is very likely a couple of older women. Uh, they've been around a while. They have obviously ministered with everyone else. Uh, they had been part of the team of women that assisted in the ministry of the church. But apparently, they had become argumentative with each other and with other people. And, and they were causing problems. And, and it was enough that the apostle had to mention them. And here it is in a cyclical letter. So get the picture. This, this letter made its way to Philippi, but it also made its way to some other churches. So by way of illustration, as he corrects this bad behavior, the other churches get to hear it as well. Because people often say, you know, if you do discipline in the church, I've heard this over and over again, if you do discipline in the church, you destroy the church. And I beg to differ with you. Actually, you strengthen the church. If you do what the Lord has said to do in the church, you're going to make it better, not worse. And people understand that it's not okay to just do whatever you want. Part of the reason why uh, many young families are leaving Protestant churches is because they look around and they just see nobody walking with the Lord. I mean, they say they're Christians and on the outside they would appear to be believers, but they haven't brought their life into subjection to what the Word of God says. And so it's like, we need something that's real. So the church makes itself understandable and real, and the Holy Spirit looks alive when things are going on that we help other people come back. And here Paul is talking in very gentle terms, and he says, listen, you know, they're causing some problems, and so I'm going to have to mention them. And he not only does he rebuke them gently, he says, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And that true companion is a really cool, it's two words there, but it has to do, it's, it's genuine fellow worker. Now some translations, and maybe the one you're reading, has that as a proper noun, like that's somebody's name. 
I don't think that that's a, a good translation. I think the better one is to understand it's just genuine fellow worker. The idea here, it appears, is he's calling on someone, likely another older faithful woman, who is a genuine follow, fellow worker with them and is still faithful. That's what he's saying. He's saying, to, he's saying not only is he giving the reproof, he has pulled in someone who is a contemporary of these two older ladies. And he says, you know, she hasn't complained. She's not a troublemaker. Come and come alongside. There's a, there's a, an, a you know, an accountability that's going on there. Come and help these women. And the question is, help them what? Well, be restored. Be put back together correctly, if you will, as Galatians says. It's what they really need right now. Uh, Much like we saw earlier from Galatians, you know, if someone's caught in a fault, you who are spiritual, or here, you who are genuine fellow worker, what? Help them. Restore them. And as Paul does the rebuking, and he calls on those who are genuine yoke fellows to help, he reminds them, uh, these women, he says, shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And in case he says you need a reference on these two women who are now not walking in holiness, uh, check with Clement and check with the rest of the men who serve with me. They'll verify what I have to say, that these were godly women who are now gone astray. You see, because something has to be done about these difficult, troublesome women. They don't get to do whatever they want in the church just because they're older. And that happens a lot in the church. You get some older women and nobody's corrected them and nobody's allowed to. And then they begin to lead the church in a way that shouldn't be led. And nobody wants to say anything. And they've been around a long time and they're on committees and whatever. It's just really difficult and hard. But it doesn't mean that we don't say it. It just means it has to be said. And if there's another older woman who's faithful, you call her alongside and say, help correct this person. See if we can salvage the situation. And so... There's a lot of reference here. There's a lot of encouragement. There's a lot of connection to what they used to do when they were walking with the Lord. And so that's the context. Always in love and with tenderness and gentleness as to a mother. That's how you deal with them. And then finally, as we wrap up today, the younger women as sisters in all purity. The younger women were to be ministered to, he says, as sisters with absolute purity, literally with chastity. And this is only one of four commands uh, that he adds anything to it. You can see he adds with purity. So I think that should grab our attention. So we'll look at that really quickly. Remember, Paul has just finished commanding Timothy to be stamped by godliness. You remember that in chapter 4? And part of being stamped by godliness, the fifth one, was to be stamped in purity. And the word actually means to exclude from the life anything immoral. So this is not just a warning against acts of immorality, obviously. But... Pastoral warmth, pastoral tenderness can easily be misinterpreted and and also exploited. And I think that there's a reason to think that was perhaps going on in Ephesus. Uh, That appears to be what was going on in 2 Timothy 3.6 where Paul says, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. So some of the erring elders were going and trying to correct a younger woman and then a whole bunch of other stuff was happening after that. And that's not good. And 1 Timothy 5.11, refuse to put younger widows on the list. That's the widow's list. We'll see this next week. For when they feel sensual disregard in, in regard, desires in regard, disregard of Christ, they'll want to get married. So not only immorality, but impropriety. So Paul says, you know, deal with sinning younger women as sisters in all purity. And so the idea then is, uh, if you're looking for, if they need a rebuke, parakaleo here then would indicate 
Timothy was to treat younger women with the same chaste manner and protectiveness that he would afford his own flesh and blood sister. Now, how many have sisters? You know how that goes, okay? You have the right to insult her and tease her. Nobody else does, right? And as you get older, it's at their peril. Somebody messes with your sister in high school, it's a beatdown, right? That's the idea. That's the understanding where you're protecting your sister. I mean, you can kid her and whatever, but you love her and you're going to protect her at all costs. And that's the understanding as you become older. It's not so much squabbling as it is. She needs your protection and she needs your, your overwatch, if you will. And that's the understanding here. And so Timothy's supposed to treat uh, younger women with the same chaste manner and protectiveness he would afford his own flesh and blood sister or flip it around. He should behave as he would want other men to behave with his own sister. That's, that's the moderating effect. He wouldn't want to say anything to a younger woman that he wouldn't want somebody else to say to his own sister, right? And then in all purity, at all costs, not able to be called out. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, if you desire the office of an elder, you desire a good thing, but you can't be able to be called out. So there can't be any impropriety there, see? So that's going to require some safeguards to be in place. There's, there's not one-on-one counseling between uh, you and a younger woman without someone else there. That just doesn't happen, beloved. So don't kid yourself. One breach of propriety, one indiscreet remark, one accusation, and the testimony is undone. That's precisely what Paul is trying to make sure doesn't happen with Timothy. That had been what's going on in the church prior. Timothy, you're there. It has to take on a new nature all by itself. So, so pericoleo is then it applies to the rest of this passage is still in the form of a command. Timothy, this is to be the manner of the care and correction you give out. And so then when you read the whole passage then, I think you get the sense of, and I think it's very helpful for us uh, to know how to apply it. Principle number one, correction that needs to be done is not to be done in the spirit of anger, wrath, or disrespect, but in the spirit of encouragement and admonishment. Along with the rebuke, there has to be some encouragement. There has to be admonishment. There's a pericoleo, a, a moderating effect and how you're going to deal with each of these people. And Paul uses family names to make sure that Timothy understands how it's supposed to go. The rebuke is still there. It's just moderated by the word pericoleo all the way through. And it takes on the sense in which the leader and those in the church, because it's one standard of godliness, one standard of conduct, uh, are to come alongside, depending on the family member, how that relates to you and your age. And then that's really principle number two. It kind of sums up and boils down everything we just got through saying. Correction that needs to be done is to be done with consideration for others as is proper in a family. See? So whether you had a good family or a bad family, you can understand from the Word of God what it was supposed to look like. You can change that mold in your own life. And so here it says, listen, however that was done before, uh, this is the moderating force that's here now. If it's an older man in sin, correct him like you would a father with deference. If it's a younger man in sin, correct him like you would a blood brother with humility. If it's an older woman in sin, correct her like you would your own mother with tenderness. If it's a young woman in sin, correct her like you would your own sister or like you'd want someone to speak to your sister and with all purity. And so that helps us, I think, uh, come alongside. It helps us uh, invigorate the church to do what it's supposed to do. And we're supposed to be a church that seeks to do and find out what's pleasing to the Lord. That really sums up Christianity in its most simplest form. When you come to faith, you come ab- about the idea that you're here to discover what's pleasing to the Lord and, be, and make that part of your life. And so 
maybe that uh, is helpful to you. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer as we are um, ready to go today. Lord, we thank you today for our time in the Word. We thank you for these two verses, which are so instructive for us to know what it says and what it means by what it says. And Father, then how it applies as we have responsibility to correct those who, who don't walk, uh, who walk in undisciplined lives, who don't walk in accordance with the teaching of the Word of God. It's our job to do it, and the way we're to do it, Lord, is very clear. And so, Lord, I pray uh, those who are doing it already, encourage them. It's very difficult to do. It seems very discouraging. Many times it doesn't go like we would hope it would. Uh, but you're responsible for bringing the chastening. You're responsible for bringing the correcting. We're responsible for bringing the reproof and, and doing it in such a way that it can be heard uh, and listened to if it's possible for it to be heard. And Lord, we thank you for that instruction. And Father, we thank you for a church that desires to walk with you. We thank you for the fellowship of the faith and our, our desire to love Christ and get uh, to know him more and to walk more closely with him each day. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. And we say this for his sake. And all God's people said, Amen.